um, about five years ago, um, we had cut down here at the church, we'd cut down some large spruce trees. You might remember them. They were sort of at the end of the lower parking lot here. And um, we cut them down to make some extra room for, uh, for parking in the lower lot. And, um, and these trees laid on the ground for a few weeks. And in doing so, they sort of drew the attention uh, of all of the firewood scavengers in town, right? Uh, if you are one who cuts your own wood uh, and burns wood, you know what I'm talking about. Uh, you will be driving around town and you might see, oh, GVEA put in a new power line extension here. And yeah, I see there's half a dozen birch trees just laying down. Oh, I could go and grab those maybe. Or you might notice that a neighbor is taking down a few trees in their yard and you think, hmm, I wonder uh, if they burn wood or if they don't. And you'll kind of look at the roof line of their house and go, how many chimneys do we have? Just one, just one for a boiler, not one for a wood stove. Maybe I'll make the approach, right? So this is what uh, you wood scavengers do. I am one of these or have been one of these. And uh, so this stand of wood down there really got people's attention. And so one day, um, uh, wouldn't you know it, I, I pull up uh, in the upper parking lot facing down there, and I look down there, and there's an old ratty pickup truck with a homemade trailer attached to it, and two, two guys, looking kind of rougher-looking guys um, that I don't recognize, going away with their chainsaws. And I'm thinking, great. So the pastoral duty that I had that day was to approach two guys with chainsaws who seemed to be making off with some of our firewood, right? So I walked down there and approached them gently, um, just, hey guys, you know, I haven't met you before, and um, I'm curious, I see you're cutting up these trees, did, did somebody ask you to do this? And they said, oh yeah, somebody told us that there was this church up here on Farmer's Loop Road that had some trees down and needed some help. And I said, oh, really? Um, who was that? You know, do you, do you have a name for me? And the one guy kind of says, boy, I don't remember the name, looks to the other guy. And the other guy, yeah, I, I don't remember the name either. Yeah, okay. All right, moment of truth here, right? Hey, guys, uh, we, we just cut these down a couple weeks ago, and we have a team of guys that are coming out to take care of this. And actually, this wood is intended to go to a woman in our church who's battling cancer, and she needs this to get through the summer, or the winter, rather. And, and they kind of, oh, you know, might have been defensive otherwise, but had no defense for that. And they said, well, maybe we've got the wrong church, you know. <laughs> sure, that's possible, guys. There's a bunch of churches on Farmer's Loop Road, and, and they kind of took the, the no-shame way out, and uh, off they went. And, Hey, thanks, guys. Take care. Stay out of jail, you know. Um, anyways, the heart of my questioning them was the issue of authority. On, on whose authority are you doing this, right? Give me a name. If they had said, oh, Dave from the facility board, I'm just making up a name, but Dave, we talked to him, and Dave said, that we could come out and take this. If we would do the work, we could have the firewood. Okay, that's a different conversation if you've, you've got somebody uh, with authority who has given you that permission. And in today's passage, in Acts 4, 1 to 22, we find this same line of questioning, right? This miraculous uh, healing that has taken place performed by Peter and John 
um, has whipped up people in the temple. Uh, we looked at the healing last week. So people are asking questions. And Peter and John have basically set up shop and they're instructing people about how this was done, the power with which it was done. And more than that, they're talking about the person of Jesus and his power to raise the dead. So this draws the attention of the temple authorities. Chapter 4, verse 1. The priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to Peter and John while they were speaking to the people. They were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people, proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. They seized Peter and John, and because it was evening, they put them in jail until the next day. I want to pause right there and just, a church jail sounds like an interesting option, doesn't it? You know, I, we could use one around here. We got a rowdy kid, boom, off to church jail. <laughs> Cell phone went off in church, boom, that's five minutes in church jail. Kind of like a penalty box. I think that'd be kind of handy. Moving on. Many who heard the message believed, so the number of men who believed grew to about 5,000. So the first thing I want to highlight here is that disciples of Jesus have been authorized to proclaim the gospel. That's really what's behind this and behind uh, what Peter and John are doing here. And this kind of authorization has been really well established by Dr. Luke throughout the book uh, of Acts, particularly in the first chapter where he cites Jesus saying, do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father has promised, uh, which you have heard me speak about. And then he goes on in verse eight, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit uh, comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And so Luke 1.8 is kind of one of several what we might call commissioning passages in the scripture. We often think of Matthew 28 as the great commission and almost the only one. There, there are actually are several commissioning passages uh, like it. But the point I want to emphasize here is that we have been authorized to be Christ's witnesses. We, followers of Jesus Christ, have been deputized to be his witnesses, to make disciples, to act as his ambassadors, as the Apostle Paul will say in 2 Corinthians. This isn't a, just a, a mantle that we pick up on our own. It's an assignment for which Jesus has left us, an assignment for which he has empowered us, and we're not just given the responsibility, we're also given the authority to do it, to carry it out. Uh, I don't know if you've ever been given a job where you had a responsibility but no authority. That's an annoying place to be. And God has not done that to us. He has not simply called us to something without authority. He's authorized us. In, in Matthew 28, we, we hear his sort of authorizing presence at the end. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. And surely I will be with you to the very end of the age. And what we're told in that last bit is that, he, that we go with Christ and with his authority as we carry out the mission that he has given to us. And then in Acts 1.8, it's front-loaded. You will receive power and you will be my witnesses. So the point I want you to hear is that more than just being called, we've been authorized by Christ and empowered by the Spirit to carry out the mission that God has given to us. And the disciples here, the apostles, 
act with that kind of confidence, unapologetic about what Christ has called them to do. We do have three groups that object to what they're doing, though, and this is kind of interesting. So let's just look at these real quick. First of all, there's the priests, right? And the priests would be responsible in the temple for uh, sort of the religious rituals and sacrifices and sort of carrying out the logistics of the worship service. Then there's another interesting figure here, and it's the captain of the temple, captain of the temple guard. And, and this figure, this individual, was responsible for maintaining order in, in the temple, like a worship referee, which sometimes I think we could use one of these in service too, you know? You could have a person roaming around the service, and you've got somebody lifting hands, but only halfway. No, sorry, that's a worship foul. If you're going to lift hands, it's got to be all the way up, right? Or we could say, wait a minute, we've got some un, unsanctioned harmonizing going on over here, you know, stay in key with everybody else. Worship referee, that's kind of this, this guy's job here. And then we have this third group, an interesting group, the Sadducees. Um, and the interesting thing about them is they don't believe in the resurrection. And I will always remember as a kid in Sunday school learning this, you might have as well, uh, they didn't believe in the resurrection, so they were... Yeah, you guys had the same curriculum, didn't you? So they didn't believe in the resurrection. They also tended to be part of sort of the upper crust. Uh, they also denied the existence of angels and spirits. They tended to be loyal to the Roman government. And they also tended to kind of uh, maintain the status quo, basically protecting their own turf and their comfortable life. So these are the figures that we have that are sort of raising uh, the objection. You can imagine in the temples, particularly with the Sadducees here, in the temple, their jurisdiction, right? Somebody talking about the resurrection from the dead through faith in Christ. And by the way, this is the person that they just put to death at the last festival, the last time everybody was together in Jerusalem a few months earlier. So you're on our turf, you're teaching something we don't agree with, and it's particularly loaded because it's Jesus and we just killed him. So they're riled. So what we find is for the apostles here, for carrying out their authorized ministry, they're jailed. They're jailed. And so in this next section here, what we find is this question of authority. That's the main thing. Verse 5. The next day the rulers, the elders, and the teachers of the law met in Jerusalem. Annas, the high priest, was there, and so were Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and others of the high priest's family. They had Peter and John brought before them and began to question them, by what power or what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers and elders of the people, if we're being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a man who was lame and are being asked, to, uh, being asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. Jesus is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. And so this passage really comes back to the central uh, issue of our text this morning, which has to do with the name of Jesus. It has to do with the authority of Jesus. 
One of the hermeneutical rules that we've taught you around here is to watch for repetition in the text, right? Uh, so how does this thing go? Repetition is the volume knob. Okay, some of you are new. You'll get it in time. It's the volume knob. It's where the author is pointing our attention in the text. And so here we have in just a few verses, verses 7, 8, and 12, uh, reference to the name of Jesus three times. And what is basically being asked here, uh, so we get, by what name do you do this? Answer, the name of Jesus. Intensifier, it is no other name by which we must be saved. And this threefold reference to the name of Jesus is all centered around the issue of authority or the question of authority. Just like my chainsaw story. By whose name are you carrying out this task? Don't have one. To these guys in the temple, by whose name are you doing this? It is in the name of Jesus. It is by his authority. And so what's underscored for us here is the supreme authority of Jesus Christ. Here in the temple, over the sick and the lame and the blind, over even the dead, and over any and every authority of mankind. Jesus Christ is king And more than that, he is king of kings. He is Lord of lords. And I want you just to notice here that their answer to the question that that they've been given in the temple is offensive. It is the same kind of offense that we give when we encounter uh, people to whom we claim the the supremacy of Christ as well. Um, It's offensive. Generally today, people are willing to grant you, oh, if you've got some religious beliefs, as long as you kind of keep them to yourself and they're personal and they're private and you don't claim any of your religious beliefs over me, well, that's fine. But if you claim that your religious beliefs are true for them as well, now you've created an offense, right? And that's, that's exactly what the apostles have done here. I think people today really approach God or even the question or issue of God, however you want to say that, kind of like a, the, a Build-A-Bear store in a mall. Have you guys seen one of these? You know, you can go in and kind of put together your own teddy bear. I want it to be about this size and this coloring and this softness and let's give him this face and these eyes and you can sort of cobble together your own little Build-A-Bear and you can take it home and find comfort with it. And this is what people do with God. Oh, I'm going to take a little bit of New Age religion and a little bit of cabal, a little bit of Eastern mysticism and a little bit of whatever, and I'll take this God of my own making home and find some existential comfort until, until I'm dead. And then I will find out that was no God at all. Right? Build a God. That's what our culture is doing. And it's an absolute contrast to what the scriptures teach. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The scriptures teach, and I know you guys know this, but just to remind you, the scriptures teach that Jesus is not just one deity of many legitimate options. He alone is the true and living God, and there is no other. I love the line that Abraham Kuyper, the Danish philosopher, um, has written. He says that there is not a square inch 
in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, it's mine. Mine. So the, the answer to their question of authority, by whose authority, they get an offensive reply. Just as that, that reply would be offensive and is offensive in our culture today. And that's our second point. The gospel is inherently offensive. The gospel is inherently offensive. Last week when I talked about contextualization, the reason I talk about this and the idea of being winsome in our proclamation of the gospel and making sure that our evangelism is animated by love and that our tone reflects that is precisely because the gospel is so offensive in its own right. It's got sharp edges. It doesn't need prickly old me making it harder. And so we want to be careful in how we share it. We're not trying to take the sharp edges off of the gospel, but rather we want to wield it carefully like a scalpel and not like a machete. So let's take a little bit of time here and uh, look at this question. Why is the gospel offensive? What, what about it is offensive? The first thing uh, we've already talked about here, because Jesus, in the gospel, Jesus is claimed as an absolute authority. And then secondly, it's offensive, I think, because it proclaims what we'll call the absurdity of resurrection from the dead. Uh, this is an offense. Resurrection from the dead is an offense to uh, our modern sensibilities and to our culture's naturalistic explanation of things. Um, if you were at Christian Thought Forum here a little over a week ago, uh, we looked at sort of this naturalistic filter in, in Dr. Bloom's talk uh, that sort of basically boxes people in that says, if you can't explain things only by naturalistic explanation, then it must be untrue or not exist or something like this. But it's interesting, when you, when you claim that naturalistic filter and you claim that things can only be known by science or what is known as scientism, you actually lock yourself into a system where God couldn't possibly exist. You've basically said, that question is above my pay grade. However, they'll still claim there is no God because we can't prove it. But I want to show you with an illustration sort of the fallacy there. Um, if, I, if I tell you, if I have a ruler... This is a ruler, by the way. And, and this is um, the only unit of measure that I have. This is all I've got. And then you come up to me and say, Eric, could you tell me what the barometric pressure is in the room? Well, I have the wrong tool for the job, right? I have the wrong unit of measurement here. And I think that, that's exactly what happens in our naturalistic uh, world or a world which is committed to scientism, not the careful use of science within its boundaries. And the Sadducees actually remind me a little bit of sort of this in our culture. They deny the resurrection. They deny spirits. They deny angels. In the same way that the claim of God is offensive to our culture, uh, so it is offensive to them because of their sensibilities. And it does not stop the apostles from proclaiming it because they've been authorized. Why else is the gospel offensive? Thirdly, because it says that we were once wrong about Jesus. Preaching in the, in the name and the authority of Jesus, again, was, was particularly offensive to these sort of temple officials because it did threaten their status quo, right? 
but also because it exposed their complicity in putting Jesus to death. It made them guilty of something. And you can imagine what a sensitive topic this would be. Uh, One festival, I mean, just a few months earlier is when we killed him, and the very next festival, this is being put in our face. Too soon, right? This is tough. But to proclaim the power and the authority of Jesus in the temple courts was absolutely offensive because it was poking them right in the eye saying, you were wrong about him. You were wrong about him. And I think we find the same thing in our interaction with people today when we share the gospel. It confronts them with the fact that for 10 or 20 or 30 years of their life, they've been wrong about Jesus. And and the nature of mankind is really to defend ourselves and to actually sort of maintain this this posture of pride which says, I'm right. Or even, see, I told you so. Uh, We've already talked about, before, we've talked about confirmation bias where we tend to take in only information that agrees with us and filter out whatever disagrees with us. We continually posture, the pride of man continually postures uh, a way of saying, I am right. Whether it's our prediction of the World Series or uh, election outcomes or whether it's going to snow tonight, we maintain this position of rightness. But to accept the gospel means to say, I've been wrong about Jesus. Forever long, I've rejected him. But there is nothing more beautiful than the working of the Holy Spirit on a person's heart that would humble them and bring them to the point where they would be willing to say, I was wrong, and I want to rejoice in what Christ has done for me. I think we get some great pictures of this in the scripture too. We get Thomas, unfortunately known as Doubting Thomas. I think he ought to be called Believing Thomas, right? Because he ends up believing. But he is one who said, you know, right, he believed in Jesus Christ, was his follower. Jesus dies, he's stunned, thought he was the Messiah, and then basically tells the others, Not unless I put my hand in his side and in his wounds will I believe, right? Fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice. I think I said that wrong. Shame on me. No, I got it right. We also have Jesus or James, the half-brother of Jesus. Tough gig to grow up with the Messiah as your big brother. Some of you, you know, maybe have some hard feelings about a brother who was you know, well-liked or well-known, and he might have acted like the Messiah. But Jesus really was. And James didn't believe it. In fact, early in in, uh, Jesus' ministry, he says, hey, no one who wants to, you know, be a public figure carries out these deeds in secret, right? You should go to Jerusalem and sort of make something of yourself, which wasn't a compliment. This was James' way of saying, Dude, you're bringing shame upon the family here at home. Could you go be a spectacle somewhere else, please? But he would change his mind and become a follower of Christ. And the Apostle Paul, of course, enemy number one of the church, starting out as one who persecuted the church, changing his mind because of his encounter with Christ and becoming its chief apologist. Um, This same kind of prideful phenomenon of, of mankind is, is addressed by A.W. Tozer in a really awesome way here. He takes issue with the phrase, accepting Christ. He, he thinks it ought to be instead receiving Christ. 
which sounds a lot like the same. But he, he takes issue with accepting Christ because of this prideful hubris, this posture that it seems to put mankind in. Here's how he says it. The trouble is that the whole accept Christ attitude is likely to be wrong. It shows Christ applying to us rather than us to him. It makes him stand hat in hand, awaiting our verdict on him, instead of our kneeling with troubled hearts, awaiting his verdict on us. The pride of man causes us to want to occupy the seat of judgment rather than recognizing we will face judgment under Jesus. So the gospel is offensive because the only way we're acceptable to God is through repentance and faith, admitting that we were once wrong about him and that we need him. And both strike a blow against our pride. The fourth reason the gospel is effective or offensive because it claims that Jesus is the only way to be saved. The only way to be saved. And this is sometimes referred to by theologians as the scandal of particularity. The scandal of particularity. At this present moment in our culture, we're experiencing this more and more. Any authority other than myself is offensive to people, right? We're rejecting authority increasingly. Um, I've referred to this before as the cult of individuality. Uh, I think the number one value in our culture right now, and this includes many church-going Christians as well, is autonomy or liberty. The idea that I'll decide what's right for me. Just live your own truth. Be true to yourself. You do you. We're at a moment now where people get to decide their own uh, gender pronouns, whatever they might want it to be. So this individualism, this self-autonomy uh, is just operating all around us like oxygen, like gravity. It's just there constantly. And so one of the ways that the gospel is offensive is because it claims that you're, <laughs> you're not God. As, as Augustine has said, God being God offends human pride. The scandal of particularity, Jesus is the only way. Now, one of the things that stands out to me about Peter and, and John in these first four chapters here is um, their boldness, right? Their courage. Think about some of the sharp edges that, that Peter and John with him have already said to their skeptical audience. You, with the help of sinful men, put him to death. You killed the author of life. It's by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. And so what we see here is interesting. Uh, Peter absolutely contextualizes his message uh, to these guys, and we see that contextualization and courage are not in opposition to one another. He needles them hard about exactly what it is that they need to hear. His audience might have been defensive or even difficult to, to believe that they were sinners in need of a savior, Right? They're the priests. They're the officials in the temple. We're the ones that, you know, we're the arbiters of people's sacrifices. How is it that we need a savior? Well, Peter nails him to the wall. Actually, you killed the savior that you need. You're absolutely in need of a savior. Verse 13. When they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled ordinary men, they were astonished 
and took note that these men had been with Jesus. But since they could see the man who had been healed standing there with them, there was nothing they could say. So they ordered them to withdraw from the Sanhedrin and then conferred together. What are we going to do with these men, they asked. Every, everyone living in Jerusalem knows they have performed a notable sign, and we cannot deny it. But to stop this thing from spreading any further among the people, we must warn them to speak no longer in, to anyone in this name. Then they called them in and again commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John replied, Which is right in God's eyes, to listen to you or to him? You be the judges. As for us, we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. So the next thing we see here is the gospel witness will be costly. But Christians cannot be silent nor silenced. We can't hold our tongue, nor can we let somebody muzzle us. Um, One of the things that Dr. Luke does throughout the book of Acts, he continually shows the adversity that Christians faced for sharing the gospel, but also how in the midst of adversity, it spread anyways. Um, And uh, uh, Gordon Fee, who is really just a wonderful um, New Testament scholar, well, scholar really of the whole scriptures, um, and he just died this week at 88 years old. Um, But he has a really interesting observation of the book of Acts. He kind of sees it organized in six panels. Um, And I have this in your notes if you want to turn it over in the back. Don't worry, I'm just going to touch on this. This is just for you to chase down if you'd like. But what he shows is this consistent panel, uh, a pattern that happens throughout the scriptures. There is, first of all, gospel witness. Then there is a time of persecution or adversity. And yet after it, there is this statement, something like, and the Lord added to their number. So we see the first panel, chapters 1 through verse 6-7. Here we have the region, Jerusalem, uh, the adversity. The apostles are arrested. What's the final outcome in chapter 6? The word of God spread, the number of disciples increased. And we see the same thing happen as the gospel expands out of Jerusalem, now into Judea and Samaria. What happens? We see the stoning of Stephen, followed by church persecution. And yet, at the end of that panel, the church enjoyed a time of peace, and it was strengthened, it was encouraged by the Holy Spirit, and grew in numbers. This is the pattern of the book of Acts. And I think the modern Christian church should find incredible comfort from this. As we look back and see the rise of the Christian church, it happened in the midst of persecution and adversity and opposition, and none of that stopped its advance or its rise. So we look around today and we feel like, man, we're really facing some adversity. You know, Christianity is sort of under attack. Should we be worried? I would say based on the precedent of what happens in the book of Acts, we ought to be excited perhaps a revival is on its way. It seems to me that where the church and where the gospel is uh, presented with challenges and obstacles and adversity, it rises up on those headwinds of adversity. Where it experiences affluence and comfort, it tends to atrophy. So the next thing we see here, in spite of all of this, in spite of the persecution, the difficulty that we may face, Christians must obey God over man. Must obey God over man. You maybe work in a place that is not friendly to Christianity. Perhaps even it's hostile. And you face daily and weekly this challenge of, how long can I be here and be a Christian? Right? 
with what I'm facing or what I'm dealing with. Uh, let, me, let me just give you a couple of principles to work with here. First of all, the general principle, or the general posture of Christians toward authority, and I mean leaders, employers, governing officials, the general posture what the Bible teaches is that it ought to be one of compliance, obedience, and even what I'll call the S word in church, submission. That's what the Bible teaches generally about our posture towards authority and towards leaders. We see this in Romans 13, Ephesians 6, Colossians 3, and 1 Timothy 2. That's what it teaches. That's to be our general posture until until we are forced to choose between obedience to Christ or some man-made authority. And then it's an obvious choice. We choose Christ. And it might mean we have to walk away from our job or a club or a friendship or whatever. We may have to make that tough decision. Um, we have a great example of this in Daniel and his friends, right? He resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine. And then... Uh, we find that his friends would not bow down to Nebuchadnezzar, but instead face the furnace. And then we find Daniel, who would not cease praying to his God per the edict of Darius, but would stay faithful in doing so. And we love Daniel because he represents this courageous standing up against authority. And that's true and right. But I'll also bring something else to your attention. The reason that his revolution or his rebellion to authority mattered was because he was such a good and faithful servant first. He was so trustworthy and so dependable and in such key positions that when he did react, it mattered. And I think that's a good example for Christians. The general posture of Christians is not to be subversive and antagonistic agitators. It's to be some of the most desired people on earth as employees, as friends, as subjects, whatever, until, until our obedience to Christ is threatened and then we default absolutely to Christ, come what may. Uh, fourth thing here, the good news about the gospel. Uh, the good news about the good news is that there's power in the name of Jesus. There's power in the name of Jesus. Verse 21, after further threats, they let them go. They could not decide how to punish them because all the people were praising God for what had happened. For the man who was miraculously healed was over 40 years old. So here we have the power in the name of Jesus that had transformed this man's health by which the disciples are, are preaching. He was healed by this power. The church continued to grow by this power. And we find, interestingly, that even by the power of the name of Jesus, some of these testy priests that they're dealing with here actually come to be believers in just a few chapters. In verse 6, it says, uh, or verse, chapter 6, verse 7, it says, So the word of God spread, the number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. This gospel presentation here bore fruit later on down the line, sharp edges and all. So what I want you to take away from uh, our, our time this morning is this. More than just being called, we've been authorized to proclaim a powerful, albeit offensive, gospel. You've been given authority in the name of Jesus to do so. Let's pray.
Father, we know that the default position of mankind is as an enemy to you, rejecting you, trusting in self. We know that while the gospel is good news, it has sharp edges. God, I pray that we would remember that we have not just been given a responsibility without authority, but we have absolutely been given the power and the authority to boldly proclaim in the name of Jesus the great and glorious gospel. I pray that we would be faithful to this task, skilled, like a surgeon with a scalpel, bringing the gospel to bear on people's lives, having gospel conversations and trusting the power of the Holy Spirit to draw those who are not saved to yourself. Lord, I pray that we also would live such good lives among the pagans that they would see our lives and glorify our God and come to know him. Give us courage for this task. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.